Hello and welcome to ROI Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is Rick Sweet. This is the podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for this 377th show is Dr. James Hutchinson, professor of English at the Citadel, who will be talking uh, to us about his new book, Ernest Hemingway, A New Life. Our history buff is Ed Broders. Ed, you get to start us off this time. Thanks, Rick. Um, Jim, I admittedly know little about Hemingway other than um, he went to Spain in the 30s, I believe, and participated in the Spanish Civil War, um, which I guess I regard that as, you know, kind of a pretty political act. Um, but I don't think um, I don't think of him as a, you know, politically active or terribly concerned with politics type of person. So can you explain a little what was going on with all that? Yeah. That's that's a that's that's an interesting phase of his life, and you're right. For the most part, he was not particularly political, uh, but you know, as a uh, a young reporter growing up and and being a European correspondent for the uh, Toronto Daily Star in the 1920s, you know, in, in Europe, he had a, a wide exposure to politics, uh, and uh, he, uh, he he tracked you know the the rise of fascism uh, in Western Europe uh, very carefully. Uh, you know, he he warned about uh, he warned about Mussolini. Uh, he went to Spain primarily, you know, because uh, he wanted to you know help the peasants uh, uh, fight on you know the side of the, the peasants against Franco. And he correctly saw uh, that the Spanish Civil War was really you know the leading edge of uh, of what would come to pass. Uh, you know, a few short years later, with the rise of uh, you know Hitler and the, and the Nazi Party. Uh, so he. You know, he he wasn't politically deeply politically uh, uh, involved or an activist uh, for most of his life. But during that you know four or five year period in Spain, uh, he uh, he he uh, you know he uh, definitely immersed himself in uh, you know in uh, in uh, uh, you know the Spanish Civil War. Uh, he loved Spain. He loved Spain. He said more than any other country on earth. And, he loved the people and the Latin culture and the you know the uh, uh, you know, the, the simple sort of you know straightforward uh, approach to life that he saw uh, embodied in the Spanish peasants and he didn't want to see that way of life disappear, uh, which is why he was so you know uh, fiercely anti-Franco. Okay, Rick. Well, I was uh, since you uh, Ed brought up uh, Spain. Um, uh, Hemingway went off to Paris and off to Cuba. I think he ended up in Cuba. That's where the uh, I think the end came. Uh, what drove him out of the United States, where he would spend time in these uh, wonderful and not so wonderful places? Sorry about that. <laughs> We're outside. <laughs> uh, yes, Cuba. Uh, well, of course, the reason that he was, uh, the first, reason that he first got interested in Cuba was, uh, living at, you know, in Key West, uh, you know, just, a, a you know, what, 30 miles or so, you know, across yeah. the water. He could, he could see Cuba. I mean, 
uh, and uh, you know he would he would go out you know fishing on the water in his fishing boat and with his cronies and so on and and Cuba at that time was a you know a real kind of uh, playground a hedonist sort of you know playground uh, and uh, he he liked it for that reason uh, he liked the uh, the Latin culture as I said earlier it reminded him of Spain the Cuban people uh, and uh, yeah he was. Uh, uh, he, I think he would have stayed in Cuba, actually, uh, for, for the rest of his life. But uh, actually, uh, when, you know, Castro uh, overthrew Juelencia uh, Batista's government, uh, the United States, you know, told him anyway, he, you know, he, he had to leave or they couldn't you know, guarantee his safety. So, right, so that's right. he finally decamped. But, uh, but I, I think he would have happily lived there for the rest of his life. Um, Jim, I'm curious to kind of come back to his uh, wives and lovers. Uh, and in the radio segment, we talked about his struggles with mental illness. Um, and so I was wondering what effect his various uh, marriages and, and affairs had um, on his mental uh, set. And if that then played itself out within his uh, written works as well. Um, well, positive well, or negative? It's an interesting. It's an interesting aspect of him. He, you know, for all of his uh, exterior, uh, you know, bravado and the, you know, the, the macho image and all of that jazz, he, you know, he was a very uh, insecure person, uh, and uh, it, he needed needed to be loved, <laughs> uh, and uh, he, you know, he looked to these women uh, for, you know, for for. Uh, emotional uh, nourishment uh, and uh, validation of his, you know, skill as a writer, skills as a writer, and so on. Uh, and so when he didn't get that, you know, he, you know, it, it crushed him. Uh, uh, that's why, you know, I think he went from from one woman to the next, you know, looking kind of for the ultimate, uh, you know, approval. I think he finally found it in his his, uh, his last wife, uh, Mary Hemingway, his fourth wife. Uh, and I think again, if you know, she, if he had not, uh, you know, descended so deeply into uh, depression and killed himself, then you know they would have, they would have remained married, you know, and lived into old age and so on. Ed, yeah, um, was there? Uh, you've mentioned uh, Hemingway's depression and I guess oscillating personality. Um, did his writing run in kind of fits and starts the same way where there were periods where he was just way too depressed to write or were those the times that he felt most compelled to write? Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, Hemingway's compositional habits, uh, he was a very disciplined writer. Uh, he, you know, got up and wrote every day, whether he felt like it or not, and, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, needed to do that every day or he, you know, felt like a failure. Uh, so, I, you know, I would say that there were days where he, you know, sat at his writing desk and, you know, maybe only produced, you know, a couple of dozen words or so. Um, but I don't know that, at least not until the very end of his life, you know, could he, would he, would he have had a day where he couldn't, you know, couldn't produce anything. Uh, he was, uh, 
you know, he was nothing if if not uh, uh, if not uh, disciplined. Okay, Rick. Yeah, I uh, the the wife has talked about Hemingway a lot over our very long and wonderful relationship, and she mentioned to me that um, I think she called it Hemingway. Right, uh, said that he wrote uh, via an iceberg theory. Uh, what what is Hemingway's perspective of his iceberg theory? Yeah, that's a that's a famous uh, dictum. It's become a famous dictum, uh, although Hemingway didn't actually articulate it <laughs> until early early in the 1950s after he had you know written the large majority of his work. But he told this to George Plumpton in an interview in the Paris Review in the Writers at Work series, which is still going on today. And he, he said that you know writing is is like the writing you should be writing like the tip of an iceberg, that is, for every one-eighth of it that is uh, above the surface, there's seven-eighths of it that's below the surface. And that was the way he visualized, you know, his his, uh, his style, which was, you know, elliptical and, you know, very terse and, uh, uh, you know, very, uh, very, very stripped down. All right. um, Jim, you, you mentioned that Hemingway sometimes had reactions to um, to some of the negative press, and in particular that he responded to F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of taking a little jab. Um, how was his relationship with the other prominent authors of his day? Because he certainly wrote in a time period where there were a number of really prominent authors, people who were considered titans of the uh, uh, of their of their uh, their day. What was his relationship like with folks like Fitzgerald? Well, his relationship with Scott Fitzgerald could, I mean, you know, has been written about as much as has been written about Hemingway himself and you know, would take up uh, an entire library shelf, probably all the stuff that's been written and hours to talk about it. There is a very, very unique relationship you know, that was, uh, you know, one part love and the other part hate. I mean, <laughs> um, well, it really was. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, it's, uh, Hemingway was, uh, you know, he was, because he was insecure, that naturally led to, uh, you know, a, a streak of competitiveness. And he always felt like, uh, you know, he was always sort of writing in the sense that he was looking over his shoulder behind him at who was catching up with him, right? And so he, you know, he feared being uh, being overtaken, you know, by these younger writers and peer writers. Um, however, on the other side of that, he could be the most generous person in the world when it came to um, uh, mentoring and nurturing and, and helping uh, fledgling, fledgling writers. Uh, Interestingly, most of them did not make it. <laughs> you know, they did not be, go on to become titans, you know, like Faulkner and Fitzgerald and Thomas Wolfe and so on. Uh, but he, he, he was very generous uh, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, helped, helped when he, you know, when he thought he saw talent. I guess the flip side of that is that when he saw, you know, talent that might eclipse his own, he got a little persnickety and, you know, defensive, so... It's an interesting dynamic. 
Okay, Ed, you get the last question for the segment. Okay, um, you mentioned the other uh, proliferation of other biographies about Hemingway, um, and but when you researched this book, uh, you know, presumably you've read most of the other uh, biographies. Um, where did you look? Where did you do your research? I mean, are his papers both in Europe and in various places in the U.S., or is there a repository, or how big a net did you cast? Well, one could cast a very wide net, you know, in terms of visiting all the places that he you know, lived and that he visited and so on. I didn't do, uh, do, do that much of that type of research, uh, but I did... Uh, uh, home in on uh, the main repository of his, you know, of his papers, which happens to be at the John Kennedy Presidential Library uh, outside of Boston. And I guess more than 90 percent, you know, of uh, Hemingway's uh, manuscripts and letters, you know, and so on are, are stored there, which is a great convenience, of course, for a scholar, <laughs> because you can only, yeah. you only have to go to one place, you know, rather than... Uh, like in previous books that I wrote, you know, I had to go to all these different manuscript archives and libraries and so on. Uh, but there are they there? Uh, yeah, and it's a it's a wonderful collection. Uh, it's administered by the National Archives because it's a you know government facility, uh, and everyone there was was extremely helpful. Uh, and uh, it's it, it was just a it, it was just a great experience every time I went up there to work. But, but why are they there? Well, it's a long story, but uh, the reason they're there is that when uh, Hemingway died in Idaho, he had left behind a lot of his papers in in Cuba. And so because Cuba had been oh. taken over by uh, Castro, uh, Mary Hemingway, his widow, had to get the permission of the U.S. government in order to go back to Cuba to retrieve his papers. And she was friends with a fellow, William Walton, who was an aide to uh, JFK. And so William Walton uh, asked you know, President Kennedy to give Mary Hemingway special you know, dispensation to travel to Cuba, and he did. And in return, uh, uh, Mary, you know, gave the papers to the Kennedy Library. Uh, eventually, you know, after uh, obviously after Kennedy was assassinated. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guest for this 377th show, Dr. James Hutchinson, Professor of English at the Citadel who's talked to us about his book, Ernest Hemingway, A New Life. The history buffs for the show were Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.